Brothers and sisters, I would ask that you please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Jonah, as we will be looking at Jonah chapter 1 and concluding this chapter with verse 17. So Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. Please then, brothers and sisters, if you would, hear with me the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, miracles and the supernatural have really fallen onto hard times in post-enlightenment biblical criticism. The Bible became, like other things, a scientific pursuit in which man is trying to figure out what the, the human int- author intended to mean when he wrote And as he wrote, he was writing in what they would describe as a closed universe. And when I say a closed universe, what I mean by that is that there are laws of nature. And these laws of nature cannot be broken according to them. And so as they interpret Scripture, they they cast out all of the miracles which would be a violation of the laws of nature. And they interpret them now, or, or recast them in a sense, in terms or in ways that can be naturally explained. Uh, For example, think about the story of Jesus walking on water. To many modern exegetes and scholars today, what they would say to you is this, a miracle did not occur that day. What happened is that they were close to the shore and there was some wood that stuck out into the water. And so as Jesus is standing on the water, what he's really doing is standing on water or wood that's covered by water. So it appears to be a miracle truly isn't a miracle. And so this is what a lot of modern exegetes do today with with many or all of the miracles in Scripture. This is what they do with Jesus feeding the the 5,000 with Daniel in the lion's den, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, with the parting of the Red Sea, with Noah's Ark and the the global flood. All of these things they explain away as, as myths or fables or something that occurred in some natural way. And the same we need to see is true for uh, the story today. The same is true for the prophet Jonah. This is how they would interpret this text, that that this event is a miraculous event. And because it is a a miraculous event, it is one that, that could not truly have occurred. So this falls kind of into the category of maybe Jewish folklore. But this belief we need to see spreads like gangrene into the church. If this is what the academics are teaching and if this is what ministers are now coming into the pulpit and and preaching to their people and this is what students going off into the seminaries learn, no wonder that it confuses the people in the pews and they don't know what what to say or, or how they are to think about this and they end up teaching their children those things that they are taught. But what we need to see is that is that uh, teaching that miracles don't exist is is tremendously hurtful to the Christian religion. Right? We cannot deny miracles. We cannot recast them as natural events. We cannot push them out of the Scriptures without having great repercussions upon the faith. 
I mean, just think about it. If we remove the miracles from the Bible, what do you have? You don't even have the Christian faith any longer, do you? Because think about it. The Son of God becoming incarnate through a virgin birth after being in the grave for three days, being raised from the dead. And then what does that say about, about us as well? I mean, our conversion from, from death to life is a supernatural event. right? Regeneration, a supernatural event. Our likewise being raised up bodily on the last day, a supernatural event. And so one thing that we, that we know for sure about the God of many modern exegetes, if they claim a God at all, is that He is a small God. He is a little God. But He is not our God. Right? Our God is a, is a great God. Our God is an infinite God. Our God is an incomprehensible God. Our God is a God who created man from the dust of the earth. Our God is a God who created all things that exist in the space of six days. Our God is the one who makes the clouds to rise and, and lightning and, and rain and He brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Our God is the one who gave Gideon and 300 men the entire army of the Midianites. He is the God who moves the hearts of kings and who opens the hearts of sinners in order to receive the Word of God. Right? God is an omnipotent God who is guiding and directing all of history to its telos or to its, its goal, to its rightful end. And everything is unfolding in human history according to the infallible will of God. And just as He determined and decreed it, that is the God that we serve. Right? That is the God of Christianity. That is the God of the Bible. And God as Creator and Maker and Sustainer and Upholder is free to use whatever means or not use means if He chooses. Right? He is free to, to use the laws of nature if He wants to. He is free to use secondary causes. He is free to use other means. But yet, He is free likewise to, to work beyond means or above means or against means and against the laws of nature, which is what we see here in our text today. Right? God worked miraculously in the life of Jonah. And this miraculous event was one that was believed by the Jews in the 8th century B.C., it was one that was believed by the Jews in the first century B.C. as Jesus Himself believed in the, this being a, a factual and miraculous event. This is a story that was believed to be factual and true throughout church history and it needs to be one that is received and believed as factually true by the church here today. Right, we need to see this event as a providentially orchestrated event by God for God's glory, for the good of Jonah. And as we read it today, for the good of God's church. That is what this is what it has been given to us for. Now, in the English Bible, um, this text, verse 17, our text today, makes up uh, the very last verse of chapter 1. But what we need to understand is that the, the chapter divisions and the, the verse numbers are not divinely inspired. Those are, those are added much later and they're added to help us as we read the, as we read the Bible. They, they provide clarification for us as we read. But in a standard Hebrew text, verse 17 is actually verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, to you, that might seem as maybe a minor thing. What does it matter if it's 17 or, or, or 1? But I think it can have an effect upon 
maybe the emphasis of, of the text as we read it. You know, does it come at the conclusion of verse 16, which is dealing with, with kind of the chastisement of Jonah and the punishment and the wrath of God? So does the swallowing up of Jonah kind of tie into that aspect of it? Or should it really be tied into chapter 2, dealing with now a new development and a new thought that is going on in a new interaction with God and Jonah here in our text. Right? If it's, it's, if it's to be read as verse 17 of chapter 1, remember Jonah's rebellious, he's thrown into the sea, then it seems as if this is kind of God's uh, a punishment to Jonah here, if it's still attached to that, to that section. But if we read it as a part of verse 1 of chapter 2, then we see that this isn't God's punishment or God's wrath to Jonah, but rather you will understand it and read it as this being a part of God's mercy towards Jonah. Right? Sending the, this great fish to swallow up Jonah is not a part of God's wrath. It is a part of God's mercy. The great fish is not an instrument of God's anger, but the great fish is an instrument of God's love towards Jonah. And Jonah realizes this. He realized, This is why he exclaims then in verse 9 of chapter 2, Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is what he has come to realize. And then in verse 10, what happens? He spit out of the great fish's mouth. And so, I think it kind of makes sense if you think about it. Those are kind of the bookends then of chapter 2. A swallowing to begin the chapter and a spitting out to end it. Those are kind of, kind of the bookends. And then everything in between de- de- describes what's going on there. What, what, uh, God's merciful actions towards Jonah after he swallowed up and before he spit out. And that which Jonah will declare, that salvation belongs to the Lord, is what our text this morning is really a picture of. It is a picture of what God does in the life of the sinner so that we too might declare salvation belongs to the Lord. And this leads us then, brothers and sisters, into our first point this morning, which we will title The Bitterness of Sin. The Bitterness of Sin. Before we get to the salvation, we have to first get to the the bitterness of sin. Now remember, last week we concluded with Jonah telling the sailors, if you want this storm to, to quiet down, you must throw me into the water. And we're told that after much prayer, the sailors determine that this is God's will. And so they, they throw Jonah over the side of the boat because of Jonah's rebellion. And Jonah understands this, right? Jonah understands that sin was the reason that he had to be cast off. Right? His rebellion towards God was the reason he had to be thrown in. This is why he says in verse 12, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. What I want us to see there is that Jonah has come to taste the bitterness of his sin. Jonah has come to taste the bitterness of his sin. Initially, Jonah's sin was sweet as honey to him. This is why Jonah could get on that boat, could go down into the bottom of it, and could rest quietly and securely even though the waters raged and beat against the boat. Because initially, Jonah's sin was sweet to him. But now, God is making Jonah taste the bitterness of his sin. And look what it has done. Well, look how he knows this. Because... 
God brings this, these waves that, 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 crash, that crash against it. And Jonah now tastes the bitterness of his sin because look at what sin has brought to his door. Right? We aren't told for how long, but we know that Jonah right now, at the beginning of verse 17, is floating in the water. Right? Jonah's in the water. We're not told how long that he's there, but before God appoints the fish to swallow him, Jonah's in the water. And as Jonah's in the water, Jonah understands that, that this is what he deserved, that the wages of sin is death, that it, he deserved this for his crimes against God. And so, as we said last week, Jonah sentences himself to death and says, throw me over. You see, Jonah's duty was to promote the glory of God. Right? Jonah's duty was to promote the glory of God. But he was to promote the glory of God through his living he was to promote the glory of God through his obedience by going to Nineveh and preaching to the Ninevites. But because Jonah failed to promote the glory in that way, what we need to understand is that God was still going to get his glory. Yet now the glory of God was going to be advanced through what Jonah suffers. The glory of God is now going to be advanced through Jonah being able to be a testimony to the nations that God is righteous in all of His dealings with His people, even in His chastisements and His punishments that He sends because of sin. And this isn't just true of Jonah, brothers and sisters. Each and every one of you here today have been created for the purpose of promoting the glory of God. As one of the, the children here today started off the catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, their question, what is man's chief end? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is what we have been created for, each and every one of us. And we see this even from our study in the Confession, do we not? What was Adam created to do? He was created, he was placed in the garden, tasked with promoting the glory of God. Through what? Through His, through his obedience, through, through having uh, children, through commanding His children in what the Lord told him to, to pass along. He was to promote the glory of God in having dominion over the creatures. He was to promote the glory of God in keeping out impurity from the Garden of Eden. As God tells him that he was to work and keep the garden. But what happens? Right? Instead of promoting the glory of God, what do Adam and Eve do? They promote their own glory as they seek to be made like God. And so they fell as they turned away from God's Word. And what do they do then? They flee from God's presence. And what did that bring them? What did that result from that? What did that result bring for them? Only bitterness. It brought the bitterness of sin. Nothing good. After that one momentary act or moment of pleasure that they had, it, it brought the bitterness of sin. Because why? As soon as they sin, what happens? They're cast from their home. They're thrown away out of the presence of the Lord. What happens? God immediately curses the work of Adam's hands. And God tells the woman that He's going to multiply the pain of childbearing because of sin. All because Adam and Eve did not see sin as something bitter to swallow, but rather they seen sin as something sweet. And isn't this not what all humanity has done? Right? We've all turned aside, like Adam and Eve, from promoting the glory of God and sought to promote our own glory, not considering the bitterness of our own sin. This is what Paul says in 
in Romans chapter 3, verse 12. He says, all have turned aside. Together, we all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We all once followed the course of this world. We all lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and of our mind. And we by nature became, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, children of wrath, children of disobedience, just like the rest of the world. At one time, brothers and sisters, our sin, just like Jonah, was sweet to us. Our sin was sweet to us. We loved it. But just as poison can be sweet when it's tasted upon the lips of someone, what does poison do? It kills. It destroys. It brings pain and calamity and death. Think about it just practically. What does sin do? Think about all the the marriages that sin destroys. Think about all the, the hurt that it brings to children. Think of what what sin does to the children. We all probably know of marriages that have ended in divorce because of sin. We all probably know of children who now reject the faith because they've seen parents profess Christ but live ungodly lives. That's what sin does. Sin destroys societies. Sin is the reason that we have infanticide. Right? Sin is the reason that families are torn apart. All institutions and and things that God established as good in His creation that man now perverts. And each and every one of us would have happily continued in our sin and ran headlong into death if God did not bring things providentially into our life to cause us to fall to our knees and to surrender to His will. For some of you here today, that may have been a great event. It may have been a great event that caused you to fall to your knees. Perhaps some great tragedy in your life. For others of you here, it may have been something that seemed small or insignificant. But no matter the case, what God does to all prior to saving you is He shows you what you deserved. Just like He showed Jonah. And that is death. Right? Every sinner must come to realize, I am a sinner. And every sinner must come to understand and realize That no longer do they see their sin as something sweet, but now they see their sin as something bitter. Sinners must be humbled before Almighty God. Sinners must see themselves, as I hope all of you have, as someone who has been brought before the tribunal of God, the great heavenly judge. And you, I hope all have seen yourselves stand before the judge. And you have heard your own case prosecuted. And you have heard God slam down His gavel. And that you have heard yourself being condemned to death. And that you know that as you stand before the heavenly judge, there is nothing you can say, no excuse you can make. And that He would be righteous and good and just to send you to to eternal death forever. I hope that you have all come to that conclusion. And this is what is pictured for us in our text. As Jonah dangles in the water right before he is swallowed up by this fish. You see, before God saves, before God rescues, before God preserves you in His Son, He first shows you that you deserve to perish. He allows you time and time again to taste the bitterness of your sin. 
Because only then can you see and want to embrace the amazing grace of God. This leads us to our second point this morning then, the amazing grace of God. Jonah, at this point, as he's floating in the water, is broken down. Jonah is feeling that he is no longer useful to God and that he would be better off dead. Jonah right now is at his lowest point, discouraged, feeling despair, totally hopeless and helpless. And yet what I want you all to see this day is as Jonah here is about to die, as he is at his lowest, here in God's perfect timing, he swoops in and he saves the sinner. At his lowest point, he now swoops in and he saves Jonah. And we are told then here at the beginning of verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish. Now this word appointed is used three more times throughout the book of Jonah. And so I want you to look uh, there with me. First, at Jonah chapter 4 and verse 6. We read this, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. In verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. In verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Brothers and sisters, what did we say as we began our study in Jonah was one of the primary kind of purposes and themes of this book. The sovereignty of God. And here we see the sovereignty of God masterfully displayed as Jonah declares his God to be the God of heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and God demonstrates that sovereignty over His creation, as God over all things, and appointing His creature to do something, and that creature obeys. Right? That, that, is, that is what God does. He appoints a plant and it does. He appoints a worm to attack and it does. He appoints the, the sun to scorch and it does. He appoints this great fish to swallow Jonah, and it does. This is God's sovereignty, masterfully, beautifully, wonderfully put on display for you. Now, God wanted Jonah to be made aware of God's displeasure with Jonah's sin. This is why God hurled this great wind and and beat against the boat. But now, as Jonah is drowning in the Mediterranean Sea, what what God wants to make Jonah aware of is His amazing grace. That is what he wants Jonah to be made aware of. We need to see that this is not a a random act. This is not an act of chance. But this is God. It is God who commands His creature of the sea to swallow up His servant, and He does. God appointed it. God arranged it. It is God who works all things out according to the counsel of His will. Jonah thought that God determined for him to die that day. But God says no to Jonah. And he says no to Jonah in allowing this great fish to swallow up Jonah whole. And so we need to see, brothers and sisters, that this great fish was not sent as a means of punishment, but rather as a means of rescue. The swallowing up of his servant is God sending this great fish to deliver Jonah from certain death. As Jonah is being swallowed up by this fish, 
What God is doing, we need to see, is sparing Jonah's life from that penalty for sin, which was death. In this event, what we need to see is God showing compassion and kindness and mercy on Jonah. Not giving to him justice, but rather extending his grace to Jonah. A grace that we need to see that Jonah wasn't worthy to receive. A grace that that Jonah did nothing to merit. A grace that God extends to all of His children. Like Jonah, we all were drowning in the sea, unable to rescue ourselves. And like Jonah, just as He extended His grace and mercy and appointed this fish to swallow Him up so that He would not die, God likewise, in His sovereign plan, appointed a means to come and swallow up us by His grace so that we too would not die. For us though, it wasn't by a great fish. What God appointed for us was that effectual calling through the preached Word and the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It was through faith in God and what He has done for you in Christ that you have been saved. And this too, brothers and sisters, we need to see, is of God's divine appointing. Right? This is what the Bible says. This is what is pictured for us in, in a text like Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. Acts 13.48, Paul and Barnabas, were told, are preaching to the Gentiles salvation. And we're told that there are Gentiles there who hear the Gospel proclaimed, and what do they do? We all know this text very well. They hear it and they rejoice and glorify the Word of God and then all who were appointed unto eternal life believed. Here's that word, appointed. What does appointed mean? Appointed means ordained, assigned, designated, determined. Just as God determined the great fish to be a means of rescue for Jonah, God determined or designed or ordained the preached Word to be the means to rescue sinners now. Right? We need to see that. So that all who believe in God are those who have been appointed to believe. You believe in Christ as your Savior here and now because you have been appointed to believe. And God brought about that saving faith in you through providential means, the preaching of the Word. And this is the confidence, brothers and sisters, that we can have as believers. That the God who saved Jonah from death by divine appointment is the same God who will save you and I by divine appointment. God will lose none who are His. God will not abandon any of His children to death nor Hades, just as He did not abandon His servant to death in the sea. But instead, God being rich and abundant in grace and mercy, and delighting in having mercy upon whom He will have mercy upon, saves us from misery and death by swallowing swallowing us up in His grace and preserving us until the end. This is what He does with Jonah. In the swallowing up of of Jonah by this great fish, He is preserving Jonah to the end until it's time for him to be spit out. Now, what we need to see you keep hearing me say here in, in, the, in the sermon here, a, a great fish, a great fish, a great fish. And I say that because there are some misconceptions about, about what this animal is that swallowed up Jonah. I think a lot of times what people do is you hear Adam and Eve bit into an apple. It doesn't say that, does it? Just like here, it says, it says Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish. It doesn't say whale. 
The, the word here is great fish. It is not whale. It is great fish. And so we don't know what in fact swallowed up Jonah. We know it was some sort of great fish. It was some sort of sea creature. Uh, could it have been a whale? Sure. Could it have been a, sh- a shark maybe? Sure. But all of those things are, are conjecture. But what is certain is that God miraculously preserve, preserves Jonah in the belly of this great fish and Jonah comes out without any blemish. This is what's amazing. This is what's miraculous. That whatever the sea creature is, swallows Jonah up and not one mark is on Jonah. He's not scratched by the teeth of this animal one bit. Right? God miraculously allows Jonah to survive for three days in the belly of this great fish. To, to breathe and to live there. God providentially and miraculously causes the digestive system of this great fish to not to be restrained and to not work in those three days that Jonah is in the belly of this great fish. Now, oftentimes, critics of, of, this, of this text and, and of uh, Jonah being in the belly of a of whale for what it says three days and three nights, oftentimes, likewise, point back to, to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, where Jesus says, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so will Jesus be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And so people say, well, ha-ha, the Bible's false. We've proved it. It's wrong. Because we know for a fact Jesus wasn't in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. I hope we all know that. He wasn't, in fact, in the, in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He went into the earth Friday night and He comes out Saturday morning. But what we need to be careful of doing, brothers and sisters, and what so many people do is they impose how we think of things on to, to these people. Right? They, they impose our way of how we talk about time. And they impose that on to the Jewish people here in the 8th century B.C. and the 1st century B.C. You see, what we have to understand is that to the Jews, right, a, 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 to, a part of the day, if something occurred on a part of the day, it was reckoned as the whole day. Right? If something occurred on the part of the day, it was reckoned as a whole day. Which is why Jesus can say that He was going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, although we know He was only in there for three parts of three days. And this is the same that's true of Jonah. Right? Jonah is, is said to be in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights when he's in the belly of the whale for three parts of three days. But what I want us to see is that we should have no problem with that. There is no problem with that. That is, that is how the Jews reckon days. If it has, something happened on a part of the day, it was spoken of as if it occurred the whole day. But what I do want us to see, though, is how far, though, God's providence extends. Right? That's what we see in our text today. How far God's providence extends. And it extends into the waters and the bottoms of the sea. Right? There is no inch of the earth that is precluded from God's providence. Right? There is no moment or event in your life, brothers and sisters, that the finger of God is not having His hand placed upon and directing and guiding in your life. Right? As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, that a sparrow would not even fall apart from God. Right? Jesus says, every hair in your head is numbered. And, and then right after that, He comforts them by saying, by saying this, then, fear not, therefore, because are you not more of, of more value than the sparrows? Right? And all of us need to be reminded of this. There are many things in this world that cause us anxiety and grief and worry, but we need to remember 
that God's providence extends to all things, right? That God is control, in, in control of everything, right? That there is nothing outside of the authority of God, but that also includes then our chastisements. Right? We have to understand God's fingerprints are all on our chastisements, and He sends those to us in order to, to not only humble us, but to help us and to drive us closer to Him, just like He does with His servant Jonah. And this leads us then to our third and our final point this morning, which is the entombment of Jonah pictures the entombment of Christ. The entombment of Jonah pictures the entombment of Christ. As I pointed out last week, Jesus Himself says that Jonah is a type of Christ. And Jonah, last week we said, was a type of Christ in the sense that Jonah offers himself up as a sacrifice so that the other sailors on the boat would not die. Right? In, in a sense that, that prefigures or that, or that points us forward to, to Christ coming and His once and for all sacrifice uh, for sin. Now, in Matthew 12, Jesus describes Jonah as a very specific type of himself. He really says Jonah is a type of Christ in two very specific ways. One of them we're going to look at briefly in our text today, and the second way we're going to look at when we get to chapter 3. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 once more, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is to say that Jesus sees some sort of analogy or correspondence between the two events. Jonah, in a sense, we need to see, is is entombed in the belly of the whale. Jonah is buried in the belly of the whale in the deep sea. And in being entombed in the belly of the fish, what we will see next week is that Jonah can talk about being in Sheol in chapter 2 of chapter, of verse 2 of chapter 2. He talks about being in Sheol, in the, in the realm of death. And after being in the grave, so to speak, what, what happens to Jonah after those three days? Right? He, he spit out of the fish's mouth. So that there is a kind of death burial, and resurrection that Jonah experiences. But remember, brothers and sisters, what, is, what do types do? Right? They, they look beyond themselves for an ultimate fulfillment in that which they signify. Right? And so Jonah is a type of Christ, the antitype. What we are being taught here in our text today is not to look to Jonah, his death, burial, and resurrection, but to look to Christ, the greater Jonah, in the death and burial and resurrection that, that He has offered up, as Christ has, been, has, has suffered death and been buried in the grave and raised to newness of life, so that we too would not suffer being death, uh, dying forever and being put in a grave forever and, and, and not being raised to newness of life. Right? It is Christ, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that, that Christ is the firstborn of the dead. And at the same time, Paul can say that Christ is the head of the church. Which means what to us? That as members of His body, that we are going to experience what Christ our head has experienced before us. Which is to say that just as Jesus was put in the grave and resurrected bodily, so too will all who place their faith in Christ. We will one day be put in the grave, but raised bodily. And this is what Daniel himself promises us in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. He's speaking about Christ's second advent. He says this, And as many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
some to everlasting contempt. Right? This is the general resurrection that Jesus speaks about as well in Matthew 25. But what I want us to see is that before the second resurrection, what must first occur? To have a second resurrection, you have to have a first resurrection. We can't skip the first resurrection. And what we need to see is that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, what that is secured for us, is not only the second resurrection, but likewise our spiritual resurrection, or that first resurrection where we have passed from death to life. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Right? This is why no one apart from Christ has hope of being bodily raised to glory. Right? You only have that promise of being bodily raised to glory if you have first been united to Christ and raised to newness of life, having experienced the first resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, as we draw to a close, the, the, the question is, then has God done this supernatural and miraculous work in your life as He has done in Jonah's? Because we all need to see that, that we cannot do it ourselves. Just as Jonah was helpless in the sea, we are hopeless to our sin. Right? You cannot save yourself. God must do the saving. God must be the rescuer. But you will never see your need for a rescuer if you don't see the, the grievous nature of your sin. You will never see the need of a deliverer if you don't see what your uh, sin is, has, has caused you to deserve. And so let Jonah be a picture for us today of both those things. Right? Of both of what our penalty for sin ought to be, but also the gracious nature of God in offering to us salvation in His Son. Right? God is calling out the Gospel to all people. He is calling out to all people to repent and believe, but what we have seen today is that it is only those by divine appointment who can come and place their faith in Christ. And so I call upon all of you today, if you have not trusted in Christ, call out to Him. Ask for faith and repentance. Ask that God would make your sin contemptible to you. As Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father have given to me will come, and whoever comes, I will not cast him out. And so if you have not placed your faith and hope in Christ, then I say, come sinner. Right? Come to Christ and cast your cares upon Him for He is your only hope of salvation. And yet for those of you here today who believe, remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, that, that He who began a good work in you will bring it about to its completion. Perseverance is a mark of being a true child of God. Yes, perseverance is something that God does in your life, but you need to understand that He uses means to do it, just as He, uses, just as he used means in our text today. What are those means? The preached Word, the gathering of the saints, prayer, the sacraments of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I want you all to know this. Do not, do not hang your hat on some profession of faith you gave years ago. Do not hang your head on those things. For Jesus says, many will come and say, Lord, Lord, did I not say your name? And what is Jesus going to say? Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. So I implore you all here today to make your election and calling sure. Right? To, to humble yourselves before God every day. To continue to entrust your souls to your Savior. And then to look to this picture 
And look to this picture of, the, of our text here today with Jonah. Right? And see God's work of salvation. Right? Look, look to this. But don't look to it in order to boast in yourself or anything that you have done. But look to this picture of salvation that God has done in Jonah's life to be able to boast about God and to be able to, to glorify what God does in the hearts of His people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your servant Jonah. Uh, we thank You, Father, that we see uh, Your kindness and graciousness to Jonah and what that pictures for uh, Your children here today. That You, just as You did not leave Jonah in his sin and misery, but You were his rescuer and deliverer by appointing this great fish to swallow Jonah up. Uh, you likewise, Father, have have been our great deliverer and rescuer by appointing to us uh, a, a time to hear that preaching of the Word and that You, Father, through the preaching of the Word have, have used it to convert us uh, to, to Christianity. You have used us to convert us uh, to Yourself. And so, Father, we are so thankful for this. We ask, Lord, that each and every day we would be reminded that salvation belongs to the Lord, not to ourselves, and that we would continue to look away from selves and look towards Christ every single day of our lives. So, Father, we come before You and we ask all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.